Welcome back to Troubleshooting Agile. Hi there, Jeffrey. Hi, Squirrel. So are you ready to go on to undermine Agile team results even further? We're on number four of five now. Yeah, I think we've been doing really well. Excellent. So the next thing to assume, if you want to really mess up your Agile team, is that your feelings and behaviors are justified, to quote the article from Schwartz that we've been referring to in the show notes, as always. Mine totally are, by the way. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because <laughs> Absolutely. Completely, they must be. Because others don't understand the situation as it really is, read as you see it. Because others are wrong, and because others may have questionable motives, you consider your feelings and behaviors justified. If you are annoyed or angry, if you need to end-run someone to accomplish a goal, or if you summarily pull someone off a project, it's all justified. Although you might have preferred not to do these things, others' behaviors left you no choice. What do you think, Jeffrey? Well, absolutely. I mean, this just, as you can see, this is a natural consequence of the fact that we understand the way things are and we're right. And, you know, I'm not sure about whether people are even thinking you know, it would be nice to, to, to do things up front and to, you know, to let people know what's going on and to involve them in the decision. But really, once they've proved themselves to, to not understand the situation and to just be wrong, it's hard to figure out how to include them productively. Absolutely. And all that curiosity stuff where we say that exactly when you think that you're right is exactly the time to ask more questions. That's hogwash. We, we don't want any of that. Not if I want things to grind to a halt. <laughs> exactly. If we want, if we want to bring the the team to a complete standstill without internal commitment, that would be the way to do it. So you run these sessions at KitCon called "Frustrated." It's probably your fault. Yeah. We'll put a link to one of those in the in the show notes. So those being your fault wouldn't wouldn't match here, right? Well, it it turns out that's in in those sessions. I'm asking people if they are experiencing some frustration. Uh, that they might be contributing to the problem and that there's therefore ways they could do it. So these are people who want to stop undermining their teams. They want to start making productive, collaborative progress. So the goals there are a little bit different. But we do, uh, in those sessions, often uncover people unconsciously making these assumptions. And uh, one of the very early And, and ones... doing a really effective job at stopping their team. That's that's why they come to the session. <laughs> that's right. And, the, and they share the fact that they're frustrated and that, uh, and in particular, we had one that really illustrates this principle very well about someone describing how their feelings and behaviors were justified. And I thought it fit uh, very well here. It was um, one of the earlier sessions uh, of the type. And uh, what happens in, in the sessions, I ask volunteers uh, who are frustrated with the situation and to come forward and, I, and I'll just ask them questions. And I entice them by saying, I'll ask questions until you feel bad about yourself as a person and then you'll sit down. Uh, <laughs> and somehow people keep coming up. You know, the person came up and he, and he had a, a situation which he talked about his frustration that they were doing a remodel of their development offices. And uh, they had, were on several different floors and they had uh, done one of the floors uh, into what he thought was a better architecture, better layout of the floor, and they'd, they'd move from private offices to an open floor office plan, uh, which you know he says is obviously the right thing to do. It's the future. It's the way everyone's going, and these uh, private offices were really a thing of the past. Everyone's doing it. It must be right. Yeah, it must be right. And he just he really thought it would increase collaboration, and they'd be much more productive. It was clear in his mind that how much more productive they were going to be. Um, but he had on this other floor some people who were being, you know, retrocident. They were arguing and uh, saying that they should keep their private offices. And 
what was good is he he managed to um, make an attribution to them, which is, you know, of course, it's not really about productivity. They say they're more productive in private offices, but really they just like having the perk. And so I, I asked him, I said, well, so it sounds to me like you think that people would be more productive in an open floor plan. He said, yes. And they claim that they're more productive in a private office plan. And he said, yep. And I said, well, so then what happens from here? What, how could you resolve this about which of you are correct? And his first response to, to, was to say was how is he going to resolve the situation, which had nothing to do with that. He said, well, look, I know how the game is played. Uh, it's going to take some time. We're going to have to have several meetings, but at the end, it'll be an open office plan. And I said, oh, that's well, that's great. I'm glad it'll be resolved. But what I really meant was two of you are saying you have different views about which floor plan would be actually more productive. If, if, you, if you really wanted to know, uh, if you were willing to entertain that they might be right, how could you um, measure? How could you know? What kind of experiment could you do to find out which is actually more productive? And he said, oh, no, if that was the case, if that's what I want to know, I would do it totally differently. <laughs> he said, I would. I have a whole bunch of other things I would do instead. I would do this and that. And he goes, oh, I see. <laughs> that's, you're saying that's what I should do. And then he sat down. But of course, what we're looking for here is ways to make sure that you continue to have uh, organizational blockage, people not believing in the direction you're going, no internal commitment. And so you'd want to act the first way. So I know how the game is played. I'm, I'm just going to hold the meetings and listen to pretend to listen to people. That's that, right. They'll say something and, and I'll nod my head and then we'll do an open office plan. That's right. But the end's predetermined. And, and you can see that that was his experience and his feelings of frustration where he felt completely justified because he felt those people were just blocking him uh, and from doing what was obviously right and that his behavior, his, his planned actions to get the end that he wanted were justified because he was doing it in, in service of the right answer. And the more, the more he does the listening and nodding and then doing whatever he wants, the more he's going to reinforce the notion both with them and with him that he believes that his thoughts and feelings and behaviors are justified. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a really great example because we, we're uh, taking this from the Roger Schwartz article on unilateral control. And this is actually derived from the work of Chris Ardress. Schwartz is labeling unilateral control, Ardress called Model 1. And I think we'll have add to the show notes how Chris Ardress described the, the theory and use characteristics of Model 1, meaning when you are in practice, you're aiming to get control of what's going on here. What sorts of things do you do? How, what does it look like? Exactly. The that's right. The example has a bunch of those in. Are there, there are some of these we wanted to pull out and say, there, there's a long list he's got for us, but there are a few that are nicely pulled out by this example. Yeah. We'll, just, we'll highlight a couple of things here. One is that the values of, of Model 1 or unilateral control is that I'm looking to achieve the purpose as the actor defines it as I define it and, and looking to win, not lose. And you can see that here very nicely. The, the goal here was to get the open floor plan put in place. And if it was a conflict between that and private offices, well, the goal was to win, uh, not to lose. And the strategy, the primary strategy, one of, one of them is to control the environment and task unilaterally. So he, he had set up that we were going to have this series of meetings. You know, he was going to be setting the agenda. He was going to be controlling how the conversation unfolded so that in the end, the answer would, would come out to be the, the right one. Indeed. But he's going to invite the right people to the meetings. He's going to set up the meetings correctly. He's going to nod as if he's really interested, but the action will not follow. And, and that's all part of him controlling the environment. That's very important to making this successful. Because if you asked a bunch of questions to which you didn't know the answers, you, you might get answers you didn't expect. 
and that would throw off your whole plan. <laughs> that's that's right. And be, behind this, as you as you're putting this strategy into practice, then there's a couple key ways that this is you know, operationalized in the term of Argyris. And he says there's two that I that I, you could see here. One is make covert attribution and evaluations. Though these people were claiming to want to hold on to their private offices in the name of productivity, he was privately coming to the uh, decision that that wasn't their real motivation, that they had other other interests in mind, maybe it's status or uh, maybe just a, a, a perk of some kind, but that they had other motivations. But he didn't share that he was making that. That would have caused all kinds of problems. It might have derailed the plan. And, and then finally, you're going to put it in place with a uh, advocate a course of action which discourages inquiry. So something like, oh, well, let's not talk about that's in the past, that's over. And I know you have a good story about other ways that people might uh, shut off conversation. Yeah, it's actually interesting that the story I've got actually starts at this end. So the symptom I was observing with one of my clients was that the product manager uh, said that she didn't want to talk to one of the technical leaders, that in fact, she just did, did not want to speak to him at all. She would like leave the room when he came in. Hmm. I said, this does not seem <laughs> like uh, quite what you've told me you wanted. Of course, it's great for stopping your agile team. So if, if they had hired me to come in and shut down the, the team and make it totally non-productive, I would have told her to do more of that. Unfortunately, they hadn't hired me to do that. So I was in, interested in quite how this had come to happen. And it, it turns out that there was a specific incident that was one of many, but it was a good illustration where, according to that technical leader, the product manager had decided to release some untested code. And, and that should give a little heart tremor to, to most of us who are listening. <laughs> oh my God, released untested code, red alert, sirens going off everywhere. Right. And, and it's obviously wrong. So that person had concluded that his uh, observation showed that uh, the product manager didn't know, didn't care, had negative motives. And so what he did was exactly what we suggest here, which is discouraging inquiry and reducing communication. So he said, well, look, uh, I'm just going to decide how the team works. Uh, my team operates. I'm not going to involve the product manager. If anybody asks me about why I'm doing it this particular way, I'm going to discourage inquiry through the appeal to authority. So this is one of my favorite ones. People who know me will have heard me say before, well, it says here on page 72, you're supposed to do it like this in the, in the scrum book right here. The stand-up should be 5.7 minutes long and involve everyone standing on their heads. Whatever it says, we should do that. And so he was using this appeal to authority, which not unsurprisingly led to paralysis of the team and um, significantly reduced communication with the product manager and her in turn concluding that he wasn't interested in any form of uh, useful communication. So by first acting unilaterally and then discouraging inquiry about it, they managed to get to themselves to kind of a perfect storm, a perfect frozen location where the product manager and this particular technical leader weren't even talking. So uh, that's that's kind of graduate level, getting your, your team frozen. You don't have to aspire to quite be, be that good at it. And certainly you wouldn't want to do things that would lead to more communication and more inquiry. That would be the opposite direction. And the good news, you can root this in the fact that we come back to this uh, the idea that your feelings and behavior are justified. And that's that's really the core here is that whatever actions that if, if you saw them in someone else, you might question. You know, if, if, if it was someone else saying, well, look, this is this is what the book says, you might say, well, maybe the book's wrong. <laughs> and here's the point is it, it in fact probably would be wrong for them. The key point here is that you're right and your motivations are right. 
and you understand the situation. So your feelings are justified. So what's acceptable for you is not the same as what's acceptable for other people. Right? In fact, you know what they're doing is what they're what they're doing is wrong. So almost anything they do is unacceptable. The one thing that they can do that would be acceptable would be to agree that you're right and get on with things. And strangely, they don't seem to do that, which is what leads to the paralysis you're looking for anyway. Yeah, that's right. Because remember, our goal here is undermining team results and relationships. Exactly. Okay. So we've now got through four of the five key techniques for undermining your Agile team. Hope that everyone's out there trying those. We'd, we'd sure like to hear your success or failure in freezing your Agile team through believing that your feelings and behaviors are justified and acting accordingly. But uh, we have one more coming next time, and that is, Jeffrey, I think uh, I am not contributing to the problem. Is yep. that right? Is, if you can kind of crown your set of beliefs with belief that you have nothing to do with the problem in front of you, That's right. you'll be completely safe from uh, actually helping to solve that problem. Yep, exactly. And we, we can be sure that if you combine these two, that your, your behaviors and feelings, your frustrations and machinations are justified and it's really better if we didn't have to go through it, but it's their fault. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. <laughs> That'll be fantastic. Excellent. Well, let's work on that. We'd love to hear from any of our listeners. Just get us in touch with us at troubleshootingagile.com where you can drop us an email. Twitter also works, but email is best. And we'd love to include your experiences and successes or failures in freezing your Agile team in a future episode. Of course, we'd also love it if you wanted to listen to next week's episode to, to come to the, the fifth and final in this particular series, uh, if you'd hit the subscribe button. So please do that if you can, because we'd love to be back in your ears next week with more suggestions. All right. Thanks, Jeffrey. Thanks, Squirrel.